Hello, and welcome to our podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac, and we are stoked to be recording for you folks this evening. I am Sarah, and this is not Katrina. Tonight, we have a special guest on the show with us. This is Miss Darcy. Say hello, Darcy. Hey, guys. In case you were wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there that secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, and we have definitely scoped out WebMD more than a few hundred times. We are here to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, rare disorders, and anything else interesting in the news. But before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors or nurses or medical professionals. Um, Katrina is studying to be a nurse, but she's not on the show tonight, so I'm not a nurse. Please don't take anything we say on the show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any medical conditions. If you have an issue, mental, physical, whatever, please, please, please see a doctor. Do not guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Okay, let's jump right in. Before we get started, I want to give a little bit of information about Miss Darcy, Miss Katrina, who usually tapes and films and does all my little projects with me for the podcast, is studying for a final tonight. She is in school as well as, as Darcy is. So she needed the evening off, so I am recording tonight with Darcy. Darcy and I have been friends for almost 10 years now, yeah? Yeah, coming um, up. We play volleyball together. I uh, met her, I was coordinating a league, and she started playing in the league, and I remember seeing her and thinking she was going to be a big bitch. <laughs> and I think she thought the same thing about me, right? Absolutely. So after that, like, we sort of gradually started kind of chatting, because she was kind of new, to, you were new to the area then, right? Yeah, I, like, just moved to San Diego. So she, she and I kind of started chatting because I would ref games and I was coordinating the league and taking scores and things like that. So she started kind of chatting with me and then we ended up playing a little bit together and then we ended up drinking together, which was like the formative moment there. Because once you drink, Isn't somebody, it always? You're, you're bonded for life. But what, I mean, what do you have to drink? What do you have to drink this evening? I am drinking some Alabama whiskey, which I'm actually from Alabama. So bringing it back home tonight. Um, and I'm drinking out of really fun whiskey glasses that are topographical, and they have wow. mountain ranges in them. Uh, they're called uh, Whiskey Peaks. And tonight, I am drinking out of Mount Whitney. Shout nice. out to California. I've done Mount Whitney. It's have an, you really? It's a 22-hour hike if you're fast. Jesus Christ. Yeah. We, like, went up all the way up in about eight hours and ran back down. Holy shit. But it took us three times to, to hit the summit. Because it was stormy. We got stuck in a hail, electric hailstorm or something like that the first time. Second time, it just the weather was bad and we just couldn't make it. It started raining. We got cold. We weren't prepared. Third time was the charm. We made it up and ran back down. That was an intense, crazy, crazy time. God, I bet. Um, um, my dad, who is in the High Pointers Club, so he, the goal is to do all 50 high points. And he's done everything east of the Mississippi. And he's done California. And like he's climbed climbed mountains has tried three times to get up Rainier and has gotten caught in storms every it's time. crazy. Yeah. That's a really, yeah. really, we used to go up and train on Mount Rainier when I was in mm -hmm. high school. Um, my dad would take me up there to train at altitude so that I would be stronger and more fit. We never did. Oh, like, awesome. We didn't do the glacier. We went up to like, Par there's a, like a park, I think it's called like paradise park. And we would go up mm -hmm. there and just run on the pass. Cause it's paved on that portion. 
and just like really like stretch yourself. But anyway, back to the show. Uh, So Darcy, why don't you tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself so that you can, they can get a feel for where you're from, what you do and um, what you're studying currently. Yeah, so uh, I am originally from Alabama, lived in California for five years, and then moved away. It was the saddest thing I ever did. Um, But I am currently a second-year doctoral student. I'm studying biomechanics. So uh, my background is kind of in human performance, injury prevention, exercise science, kinesiology, that area. Um, But what I'm currently doing now is I'm studying blunt force trauma injuries. So that's kind of the the area I want to go into when I finish. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Um, And to be perfectly honest with the listening audience out there, I always wanted to do the show with Miss Darcy, but she turned me down because she ended up moving and she's just, just yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, it wasn't that I turned you down. She it turned was that me I down. moved across the country. <laughs> I was turned down and rejected by Darcy. She's too good for me, folks. I said, uh, fuck this. I'm out. Now she just, and she's studying for a doctorate. So it's not as though when you're doing something like that, that you have time to run around and podcast because podcasting is a lot of work too. So she has so graciously agreed to do some guest spots on the show and to fill in some time when Katrina has to study or travel, which is awesome because I know Katrina is also in school studying to get her nursing degree. And then she has four kids. So when you oh, got geez. when you got that kind of a life, it's it can be chaotic and difficult to find a few hours to yourself. I don't have any kids, and my boyfriend is very supportive of the podcast, so I am able to do this. But I mean, I do not blame other people who don't have the time or energy to do something like this because it can be pretty crazy. Yeah, my dog is pretty supportive. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what pretty is, much all I've got going what on. What is your dog's <laughs> name for the listening audience? Uh, so my dog's name is Dahlia, and she is a black dog, so black Dahlia. Um, I am a true crime, I don't know, obsessive, what, whatever you would call it. I'm constantly consuming true crime stories. So That is something fun. that Darcy and I have always shared. I remember chatting with her when we were sitting on the sidelines of volleyball games, either making fun of people or chatting about true crime. <laughs> and one of the first uh, podcasts that we, that I think you told me about my favorite murder, right? Yeah, I think so. And I remember listening to it and just being like, oh my fucking God, that's us. <laughs> How did they get our podcast idea and do I it know. before us? <laughs> God I damn know, them. Jump on us. <laughs> we should have patented that shit and trademarked the hell out of it. And then they couldn't have stolen Opportunity our, us. they stole our podcast idea. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we are going to jump right into the show tonight. Um, We've got some interesting topics for you. We are kind of doing a little bit of a different format tonight. I'm not going to do a middle point um, current events article in the middle of the podcast, but we've got some topics that are a little bit different than our usual. Um, My first um, topic tonight is what an embalmer wants you to know about death which I think is pretty interesting. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I got this from Yahoo. So again, folks out there, take this with a grain of salt because Yahoo doesn't necessarily always have the most accurate and factual information, but that's okay. Um, We all know where it comes from and we know how how seriously to take it. And if we have questions, we can always do some research on our own. But that's what I would encourage Yeah, there's Yahoo answers, right? Right. Or Wikipedia, you know. This article, (laughs) right, Wikipedia is like the master of the universe. 
This article is by Joe Wilcock, and it was originally posted in Men's Health. That's another reason why I jumped onto it, mm. because it's not just Yahoo. Yahoo took it from Men's Health. But it was published February 10th, 2019, and it basically says, in our culture of constant connection, ideas, and opinions, um, things are hard to escape. Topics once considered taboo are digested over drinks at the pub and added to the wall of social media noise. Yet when it comes to death, conversation turns cold. Ah! I get it. <laughs> fun. We, we, we love, excuse me, we receive death completely unprepared. Death, despite its certainty, remains daunting and an easy conversation to defer. We talk about death in hindsight as it happens to others. We don't talk about our own death and we don't understand our options. Weirdly, we don't like to acknowledge the inevitable. True, true, true. According to Kevin Sinclair, a second-generation embalmer, our culture, our culture approaches death via denial. There is a sentiment that if you don't talk about death, it doesn't happen. I'm not afraid of death. It's death and taxes. It happens to all of us, he says. To demystify the end of life, I spoke with Sinclair, who has worked in funeral services most of his life, and completed 40,000 embalming cases. That's a Whoa. lot of fucking bodies, right? From green burials to the process of embalming, he gives us insights into the business of death and the importance of discussing death during life. Funeral service and burial, burial, burial. <laughs> I've only had two <laughs> sips of wine. You're so drunk. <clears throat> Are important steps for family and friends. It comes, it helps us come to terms with the loss, says Sinclair. This is especially important in circumstances where the death is unexpected. If someone has taken their own life, there are mixed emotions, or if it is a quick death, there is associated shock, and the service helps people come to terms with the death. Um, another interesting tidbit here is last offices refer to the preparation of the deceased for burial or cremation. Options range from bathing the body and closing the eyes to fully embalming the body. Uh, on average, bodies are buried or cremated two weeks after death. Interesting. So they don't want to keep it much longer than that. I'm sure there's some decomposition that starts to happen after the two-week point. Or... Yeah, and I bet some of that's like decorum, too, when you want to have the funeral. It's typically within a week or two, you know? Right. Both burial and cremation require paperwork. Yes, even in deaths, there is life admin. To formally record the death, it must be registered by the Register of Births, Deaths, and Marriages. This includes babies stillborn after the 24th week of pregnancy. In order to compete to complete registration, a medical certificate stating the cause of death must be supplied. Depending on where the death occurred, the medical certificate may be issued by a hospital doctor or a family doctor. Following registration, the registrar will issue a green certificate which allows burial to go forward. Cremation requires sign-off from two doctors before the body is taken to cremation, which I can understand the reasoning behind that given our kind of history with true crime. Mm -hmm. um, um, just because you got to make sure that someone's not trying to hide some shit or poison. Well, I think that actually happened in England. There was a doctor who was like killing his patients and just yes. ordering them cremated quickly, right? That was super intense. But I think that there mm -hmm. have been enough criminal cases. Um, cremation issue has come up um, quite a bit recently um, with all the, the either doctors or different people with poison and different things like that. So cremation now requires two doctors to sign off before it can happen. The first doctor is typically the family doctor who knows the medical history of the deceased, and the second doctor is to double-check and certify. It can take some time to get all the paperwork in order. If you can imagine trying to get a doctor with a busy surgery, it could take two or three days before you see them. 
Another interesting fact is embalming is the act of preserving the body and is used when burial or cremation is unable to be carried out immediately post-death. We have a sliding scale of necessary treatments based on preservation, sanitation, and presentation, he says. The approach is adjusted based on the needs of the deceased. We can look after someone for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, or months, whatever is needed. The embalmer needs to know the cause of death and medical history to properly treat the body and ensure the preservative fluid doesn't corrupt the body further. Eh. This is where the skill of the embalmer is important. It's not just about anatomy. It's about chemistry as well. In life, the bacteria we are removing helps you with digestion. In death, there is nothing further for it to digest, so it starts to look around and will start to deteriorate and break down the body into its natural constituents. So it turns it into a liquidy disgusting gooey gross like mush essentially yeah. if you leave it um so this embalmer also says that one of the hardest things about the role of embalming is children or someone oh. in your care who has been high profile high profile a victim of a disaster or in the news and you know more about them than the basic documentation as an embalmer you need to have your own professional professionalism switched on it is likely the embalmer will have a family of their own and there are times when an embalmer will feel trouble um interesting so there is some emotion to it you tend to think of these embalmer folks or the folks that handle the dead people as being these really stoic robotic type individuals but I guess, like loners and isolated yeah but i guess yeah normal average everyday people are embalmers and they have yeah. lives and emotions and needs and things just like everyone else which makes sense Right. Um, another interesting fact is that green burials do really exist. Though these people advocate for the use of products and processes that minimize the environmental impact of burials. This includes ethically sourced, locally produced coffins, no gravestones, and no embalming. So can you imagine just being like either cremated or just buried out somewhere in like a piece of cardboard <laughs> with like no gravestone? Well, like, that's funny you say that because I actually, I don't know if you've heard of the body farm um, yes. at the University of Tennessee. Yes. So they they basically do research on, on this, right? And it's for a forensic, um, you know, com component and research and analysis. Um, but they have so many people on the donation list that they actually have a wait list. Of the bodies to be donated to help with the, yeah. Yeah. Super um, and it actually costs, if you want to donate your body to science too, it actually costs like $3,000 or it did last time. Um, I knew about this cause I taught a cadaver lab, um, many years ago. Um, it actually costs money to donate your body to science because once they're finished with studying it, um, they cremate it and then give it back to the family. So like, that's actually what you're paying for. But yeah, it's a lot of really interesting options. We should do a whole episode on that farm, the body farm thing, because I heard, um, I think it was Phoebe Judge and her show Criminal, they did an episode mm -hmm. on that. And it was just so incredibly fascinating. Like I, couldn't, I read two books on it. I could not get over it. It was just so interesting. And teaching the pigs to find or, you know, looking. <gasps> that is the best book. To, looking overhead and looking for changes in the soil composition yep. and the growth of the trees and plants and how things grow much more extensively and, and crazy growth in the areas where there's a dead body decomposing. Yeah. That is a really so good book. So anyway, I promise folks we will talk about that topic in more detail at a later time because it is just so fascinating and it's just, it's a huge bundle of information to unpack and it's clearly not something that we are able to cover on this show because we have other topics already planned. So sorry that we're not going to get into more detail on that, but we promise we will do another episode on it 
Hopefully Miss Darcy will join us for that one. I'd love to. At some point. Um, in any case, uh, people do request special service things within their burial presentation and embalming that are either mild cosmetics, they arrange for facial presentation and dressing that is consistent with being green. So it's interesting. So I guess, you know, yeah. cardboard box and no, no headstone, no, no anything with, with chemicals. So interesting. Um, another fact that they talk about is the funeral industry is changing all the time. There's a lot to be learned for the move from the movies. There are new ways cosmetics are being used, restorative arts, airbrushing, reconstruction of limbs and eyes, whatever is needed so that people can say their goodbyes, um, particularly if they want to have an open casket, which is becoming more and more common. So even if the person has undergone some sort of surgery or accident, they can sort of reconstruct the body now with prosthesis and different things to make the person look like they looked in life almost for an open wow. casket funeral, which is crazy to think about. Have you ever been to a funeral? Oh, yeah. And seen, oh, yeah. The, seen the body? Have you been I've never viewing? been to a closed casket funeral. A clo- you've never you've only been to open caskets. Yeah. That's crazy. I've never been Maybe to Maybe it's one. a southern thing. I don't know. No, because I think I was invited to a couple that had an open casket, and I chose not to go because I just didn't think that I could handle it. You know, so um, you can decide whether or not you want to keep this. My, um, my grandma passed away in October, um, and I was actually not – in Birmingham. She lived with my mom. I was down here in Mississippi. Um, and so I hadn't seen her in a couple weeks, you know, since before she passed. And my mom originally wasn't going to do an open casket because, um, she saw how the person had done her makeup and it didn't look natural. You know, it just looked very made up and, um, and so at first she was going to do a closed casket. And then at the last minute she decided to do an open casket. Um, and the person who did the makeup had actually, changed how they did it and made it look, um, much more natural and much more how my grandmother looked. And I was actually really thankful that she did that. I wasn't, I wasn't sure I'd be able to, um, do that and have, see my, you know, see my grandma in an open casket, but I yeah. was actually really, um, it made me feel a lot more comforted, uh, because I was able to see her and she looked, you know, she looked like my grandma. So it was, it was a nice way for me to say goodbye. Well, I think it depends on the person, obviously, because some people can handle that and not be sort of emotionally triggered by it. But I honestly was just freaked out by the whole prospect. And it's not that it makes, you know, me a bad person or you a bad person for going to see it. It's just different people really experience grief and death and things like that in different ways, I guess. Right. So that's interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you shared that. I don't see any reason to cut that from the show. That's um, fine. I'm always fascinated when people tell me about services that they've attended. Um, this next fact is also pretty fascinating. I wondered about this when going, when people do go to the funeral services, but it says that hair and nails do not continue to grow following death. That is a mm-hmm. common misconception. It is the skin dehydrating and the nails aren't growing any longer. It's the skin retracting, which makes them the appearance of hair and fingernails slightly longer. Yeah. I always thought that those things continue to grow. Interesting to know. Um, And then the last thing that they said was that working at a funeral service is rewarding. Originally, this person wanted to be a graphic designer, and they had lots of goals for starting their own business and and whatnot. But funeral service grabbed them, and they got engulfed. And before they knew it, they were head over heels into this profession and really enjoying it. So I never would have anticipated that that would be something that someone would say that. But 
I guess nowadays there's a lot to be learned from from death, and it, I, I do have to agree with that person in that it is something that we all experience at one point or another, and learning how to handle it. I think in the U.S., our culture is really um, just has a very negative connotation when death is involved, and we tend to like really not take it in a productive way. Yeah, well, it's like they said at the beginning of that article, we all just avoid it. It's just like there's so few topics that are taboo to discuss, but like your own death still seems to be one of those. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, Personally, I still don't think I could handle going to a funeral, but you know, who knows? Maybe that will change at some point in the future. (laughs) You've never been to a funeral ever? I have. um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I ever have. Oh, wow. I just avoided it. I couldn't handle it. Um, next article, what, what do you, what topic do you have for us, Miss Darcy? We're going to talk about locked in syndrome. Okay. So as somebody who struggles with anxiety, I'm like already having anxiety just thinking about this, but, um, so have you ever had sleep paralysis? Do you know what that is? Yes. Okay. So it used to happen a lot to me. Um, it doesn't happen as much anymore, which is weird because, the triggers are stress and sleep deprivation, which I have an abundance being a doctorate student. Right. Um, so it's, it is weird that it ha- doesn't happen that much, but it happened to me a lot when I was in like undergrad for whatever reason. So, and um, what happens is it's basically an overlap of that sleep wake stage and REM. So when you're in REM, that's what, or REM, um, that's when you have your most vivid dreams and your body actually paralyzes itself. So you're not actually getting up and running when you're running away from something in a dream. Right. So when it, when REM sleep over overlaps with these waking stages, your brain wakes up, but your body's still paralyzed. So it feels like you're never going to wake up and it only lasts for maybe 30 seconds or I mean minutes maybe at the most, but it is the most terrifying thing I think I've ever experienced. Um, and as many times as it's happened and I'm sitting there, I'm telling myself, you know, just calm down. You're going to wake up. I still, I still freak out every time. Um, so I, you know, I don't know why it happens. I looked it up on Wikipedia and they said something about melatonin levels and sleep and dysregulation or something. I don't know. Um, basically your brain wakes up before your body does. So that is terrifying enough as it is being a temporary situation. Um, so Think about that happening permanently. And so that's basically what locked-in syndrome is. So it happens basically when there's damage to your brainstem, which can happen from a stroke, aneurysm, overdose, poisoning, traumatic injury, other stuff like that. So typically the person starts out in a coma, um, and that lasts for days or weeks, and they require a ventilator. Um, But then the person starts to wake up and they're paralyzed and they can't speak. Imagine that feeling of sleep paralysis where your brain is awake, but your body can't move. But whereas sleep paralysis is temporary, imagine that being permanent and you never can come out of it. So that is called locked in syndrome. So people don't recover and then just live a normal life. This is like permanent. Yeah. So this happens um it's it's due to primarily damage to the brain stem which you know can happen from any number of reasons from a stroke 
aneurysm, overdose poisoning, or, you know, a traumatic injury. So, um, you know, normally the person will start in a coma that lasts for days or weeks Uh and they require a ventilator, um, to, to be, you know, kept alive. But then what happens is that person starts to wake up, but they're paralyzed and and they can't speak. Oh, so they can't let you know they're awake. So they're technically not in a coma anymore though, because they've got brain function and activity that they would have as awake. Their EEG is completely normal. But they can't move and they can't but, speak. Nope. Fuck, that's like worst nightmare. It's like one of the It's so terrifying. So for whatever reason, the muscles that control voluntary eye movement aren't usually affected. So there is some, you know, ability to regain eye movement, but that's it. So you can move your eyes up and down and you may be able to blink. And that's how you communicate. So what the fuck do they do with these people? They're just going to live the rest of their life out like that? So it, um, one paper I read said that more than half the time, it's the family and not the doctor that realizes the person has gained awareness. Um, and the diagnosis typically takes two and a half months. So the person is awake and conscious for two and a half months before anybody knows. Oh my god! Um, but some cases have reported taking four to six years. Fuck! Can you? Imagine? I would want you, and then you can't do anything because you There's can't. It's you can not like you it. can kill yourself. Like Mm-mm. you can't do anything. It's nope. fucking awful. Yeah. So obviously, because it takes so long to diagnose, and there's no way for the person to communicate, there's a whole bunch of just legal and ethical considerations, right? So I wasn't able to find any like rates, incidence rates of how often this happens. Um, but you know, even if I could imagine how many cases go completely undiagnosed and we have no way of knowing. Fuck. So there, there's no cure. Like that's, that's your permanent state. So once, once the person becomes stable and as long as they have proper medical care and they're, you know, appropriately diagnosed, with this, the life expectancy is actually several decades. Shit. Um, you imagine living like and, that for several decades. Well, everything I've read, the the, the patients that, that are in this condition report pretty significant, you know, normal um, um, satisfaction. Like once people figure it out and they can communicate right. in some way. Yeah, and they're getting proper medical care. So, like, there's very few um, requests for physician-assisted suicide and things like that. Like they have a pretty content life. So what do they do? Just watch TV all day or somebody hangs out and talks to them? Like what, what the, I can't imagine. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, chronic locked in syndrome patients self-report a meaningful quality of life. Um, and the technology has gotten better to where, um, people can use computers that they control with their eyes so they can control their surroundings um, and they can communicate with like a word processor um, and speech synthesizer. So like, you know, with your breath and things like that, but, but it's not like it was 50 years ago when you pretty much would have been fucked. Well, and they probably would have never even known how long would they have kept you on the ventilator, you know, freaky. Isn't that so terrifying? I have anxiety. I have nightmares tonight. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else to add on that? Mm-mm, that's it. Great. And on that note. <laughs> yeah, right. 
So the next topic that I have chosen for this evening is polygraph tests and how to beat them. So I realize this is kind of an odd topic for a medical show, but in actuality, lie detectors and the whole concept behind them is, is, is medically related um, because what they're doing is they're not just taking the straight up answer that you give. They're measuring your body rates and your sweat and your breath and your heart rate and all that other stuff um, when they're doing these polygraph tests. So it's a very, very interesting topic and it relates somewhat to a sort of a, sort of a criminal aspect that we are ending the show on because I believe Miss Darcy is going to talk about some DNA issues after this. Yeah, we're going to talk about DNA databases. Yes. So these two things kind of go hand in hand, I think. Um, it is interesting to note that polygraphs are not admissible in court at this point. I believe that at some point in time they were admissible in court until they realized that, you know, there are psychopath people out there that can easily beat a polygraph test just by monitoring yeah. their breathing and their heart rate and whatnot. So I think polygraph tests now are being used sort of in conjunction with other evidence and other things, although they're not directly used as evidence in court, they can also be used to sort of um, convince a, a potential suspect to tell their story, to admit that they committed a crime. In particular, I'm thinking of the Chris Watts case where he did take a polygraph test and readily agreed to take the test when he clearly should not have, but he thought he could take right. the test. They called him out on it at the end and at the end of the test and said, "Hey, you fucking failed this. Admit that you did this." And he actually did. So now, did he actually fail? Because they can lie to you. Like they can just <laughs> tell you that you failed it. I am not sure, but they told yeah. him on the polygraph test in the evidence room, like dozens of times, "Hey, you failed this test. You failed this test. Tell the truth." So they very well could have not been right. telling the truth, but it convinced this man enough to to admit to confess. So it's interesting. I found this article from a website called allocation.com um, called Polygraph Tests and How to Beat Them. And this was an article by Michael Kismet. And this is some very interesting little detail information that the article talks about the history of the lie detector test and things like that. So I'm going to get right into it. It says, do you think it's even possible for one to outsmart a polygraph device and the conductor? In this article, you'll learn how a polygraph exam usually works and how these instruments monitor your, your psychological and physiological signs and about the legalities around polygraph testing. In, if your case or your career is on the line, why not do the proper research on the matter? And the most important aspect to keep in mind is that the polygraph test is not an exact science. It has been repeatedly proven that not only can one fool a polygraph, but with practice and control of oneself, it can be done again at will. Within this article, you will learn everything you need to know and understand about how to beat the polygraph test. So first of all, how do polygraphs work? Polygraphs are mostly seen today on talk shows that incorporate a lie detector, which shows such as the Maury Show, the Steve Wilco Show, and various other court shows. Most notably, the show Lie Detector, a television series that aired on PAX TV. The show revolves around two real-life parties that tell their side of a story, and tests are given with the results announced towards the end of the show. The test administrator will employ several techniques during the test to ensure the most accurate results, as you will be given a pretest, which will consist also you will be given a pretest, which will consist of going over all the questions beforehand so that the test subjects knows what they can expect. 
The examiner will also establish that the machine is functioning properly by asking test questions such as, have you eaten before, etc., etc. Government employees are routinely subjected to polygraph tests. This is, of course, to dig up any skeletons that, they, that might pose a security risk. It is more or less an acceptable form of aiding and screening individuals that will be in the government employ. So, um, according, for for, according to legislation, it is a crime for companies to discriminate against someone or dismiss them if they refuse to submit to a lie detector. Suggest the prospective employee or employee or current employee will, must take a lie detector test. Inquire about the results of any lie detector test administered by a job applicant or current employee or threaten administrative action against a job applicant or employee that refuses to take the polygraph. So that being said, you can deny it, but will the process of your employment or termination of your employment be sped up or slowed down? Who friggin' knows? I'm sure that if you tell them you don't want to take one of these tests, they can find ways to either get rid of you or not hire you and not claim that that is the reason. So by no means are we advocating refuse to take a polygraph or a lie detector test, but. Well, I feel like, like outside of government work, like you said, I feel like if you're in a situation where you have to take a polygraph test or you're being asked to take a polygraph test for work, you're probably not in the greatest of situations to begin with. Right. No. Although anytime you want to become a police officer, you have to take one regardless. Mm-hmm. So there and are all at the IA. Yeah, have to do definitely it. positions where you have to take one, and it's it's interesting. But um, yeah. so the folks that specialize in this advise that if people want to confuse a lie detector, one must convince the detector of a lie when a truth is being told. So, for example, if the test administrator asks someone that it isn't integral to an outcome, one can pinch themselves or bite one's tongue to cue other physiological reactions. So when somebody's asking you a non-serious question like, where do you live? How old are you? Questions that don't matter to the outcome of the test. If you force yourself to have that physiological reaction by biting your tongue or holding your breath, then you're going to actually even out the results when they're asking you a question that you're not going to be telling the truth on. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. These false but detectable reactions will lead the polygraph conductor to false positives. This will assist in rendering the test inconclusive or simply made unclear, which happens quite frequently as well. Well, they'll do these and thinking it's going to be a slam dunk and the person knows how to fool the lie detector test because how difficult is it really to do a little bit of research before you take it and figure out how to fucking pass it, right? Yeah, I mean, how many articles are there? And like you just found this one, but how many are there that are telling you there how to do this? There are literally hundreds of articles on the internet about how to beat a polygraph test. And from what right. I understand from talking to people that have gone through these polygraph tests or lie detector tests, I know people that have lied outright to get a particular position, a government-related position, and had said they had no problem passing the polygraph test. Well, so, that's terrifying. Yeah, right? I'm not going to name any names, but I've spoken to at least three or four people that have said they passed it when they clearly had should have failed it. So I guess they say that you have to think of things that will calm you down when you're, when you're asked the serious questions that are related to your employment and then ramp yourself up when you're asked the, the test questions like how old are you, what city are you from, are you here taking the test today, that kind of thing. 
Right. It says, you can also cheat the polygraph on probable lie inquiries. Before the test begins, generally there will be a pre-test interview where the test administrator asks a question that the subject will likely lie about to establish what body reactions will arise to determine if the subject is being deceitful. Here's a quick rundown of the physical sign that one must suppress to successfully trick a lie detector test. So they say practice on maintaining a steady baseline heart rate. So like keep yourself calm at all costs. Your breathing should be slow and steady, not erratic. And this can be a real challenge for people because when you're taking a lie detector test, you're nervous as fuck. Regardless oh yeah, I have anxiety of, thinking about taking right? a polygraph. So you're like, what is this going to do? Am I going to fail? And whether you have lies or truths to tell, you're going to be fucking... The, the average normal person is going to be nervous as hell taking this test. So breathing slow and maintaining a steady baseline heart rate are not exactly as easy as one would think they are. Right. But they also say, aside from temperature, one should learn to be calm enough to undermine their own perspiration. So... Sweating, I guess, is one thing that they can detect on these tests to, to indicate that you're not being truthful. So this is where you have the whole issue of a false positive because some people just get nervous as fuck right mm -hmm. from the jump, even though they're not even telling a lie, but because they're being tested, so they're going to sweat like a pig. And that can throw off the test results as well. But they also say that one other thing you should do is learn how to believe your own lie to help throw off the accuracy of the test. Staying perfectly calm via that baseline perspiration or respiration and heartbeat. So trust me, folks, it's, it's a lot harder than it may seem um, to maintain that and to really like stay as calm as you possibly need to be. But the polygraph normally includes wires on your fingers to sense electrical resistance, blood pressure cuff to monitor your blood pressure, and a tourniquet or a strap. Pupil dilation can also be involved where they're checking your eyes out while you're answering the questions to make sure you're telling the truth because some people have pupil dilation when they're being dishonest. Um, and you can actually, they say, force your pupils to dilate on their own. But I, I guess this is not a standard procedure that's advocated on modern polygraphs, but I do believe some test conductors will look at the outward body motions, body reactions to tell if you're lying or not. It's clearly like an FBI trick yeah. when folks are going through this. But the history How do you control your own pupil? Like that's that's bananas. That's what they say. Some people can make their pupils dilate. But I guess it's like if there's a light and you have your eyes partially closed and you expose your eyes to the light and open them really wide, you can dilate your pupils. Right, but the, I mean, the person asking the questions is sitting right next to you, so they're going to see that that's what you're doing. Right, so I don't think it's as easy as, to do that part as one would think. Um, right. But they're advocating that there are ways to make your pupils dilate, um, also via like maybe dilation drops, so like you're giving yourself something, oh, yourself something yeah. before you go in, perhaps. But I thought this, they also have um, a couple of sections here in this article about the history of the polygraph test. Um, this was usually utilized to figure out whether the subject is being truthful or deceptive. It's designed to record and measure physiological fluctuations like respiration, pulse, and blood pressure. While the test subject is asked a series of pre-selected questions. John Augustus Larson invented this device in 1921, this um, polygraph test. He was a medical, student attend a medical student attending UC Berkeley in California and was also a police officer for that city. It mm. is also included in a 2003 list of greatest inventions by the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
The effectiveness and accuracy of the polygraph is usually very heavily debated and scrutinized by the scientific community, thus the reason why it is not currently admissible in court. But it is widely considered not an exact science, uh, mere pseudoscience at the best. Professor and Dr. David Martin from NC State University made a statement revealing that we have attempted to measure human emotions with the polygraph, but there's simply no viable way to measure any human emotion with any certainty. Exactly. So yeah. there are no conclusive. There is no conclusiveness when it comes to this particular science. I don't know if you could even call it a science. Um, and the feelings and emotions and everything that involved with it just make it really hard to kind of create one static and steady way to measure things with people that are being asked questions. And then the final section here was how accurate are polygraphs? Officially, they're labeled as polygraph machines largely due to the fact that there's no such thing as a lie detector. One must keep in mind these machines are more like lying indicators, not detectors. They are not admissible in court simply because they are not they are conclusively unreliable. The general accuracy and validity of lie detectors have been widely contested since its first introduction. The National Academy of Sciences concluded that the overwhelming majority of polygraph research is biased and purely unscientific. The bottom line is that polygraph is useful when it aids in detecting possible deception, yet is still a far cry from a proven scientific method, which is from every indication that I've seen and from research on the internet. It's pretty much the same thing across the board. I do not believe this is used in any way as a main way to get a criminal to confess or to obtain truthful information. I believe it is used with a variety of other tools to try to get the information that is needed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's not that it measures your like whether or not you're lying. It measures your physiological response. Right. To what you're saying. And according so to if you're people, somebody that doesn't like if you're somebody that just doesn't give a shit about whether or not you're lying, then psychopath. it's not going to register. Right. A psychopath. Right. Exactly. Like a psychopath has no issue passing these things. And like you said, I mean, they're not admissible at court. And, you know, for for there's there's always a debate of whether or not you should take one or, you know, there's the whole thing of, well, they refuse to take a lie detector test. They must be guilty. I wouldn't take one. I wouldn't like if, I, if, if the police came to me and asked if I would take one, and I, nope. even if I'd done nothing wrong, I would not take one, and I would call a lawyer like, they immediately. They can't arrest you for failing to take a polygraph test, which is the thing. Right. I don't think that most people out there understand that or understand their rights with respect to a polygraph. There is nothing in law both criminal or civil that requires you to take that. And there are actually laws protecting you if you choose to refuse to take that, including for right. employment um, and in different particular types of cases. So I don't think people understand that. And I don't think people understand criminal law and civil law in general. So they just kind of assume that when somebody in authority tells them they have to do something that they have to do it. Well, and there's, there's also the thought that, um, if you're innocent, that the police have your best interests in mind, which we'd like to think that's the case, but that's not necessarily true because no. there was, I, you know, you could probably say this better than I could, but I know that there was a court case where um, the court basically agreed that police can lie to you. Like they can bring you into an interrogation and lie to you. Yeah. And that's not deceptive. Like that's not illegal. They can do that. So it's just this, they have so many advantages in these situations that I don't think people are aware of. And I think, you know, in a lot of criminal type cases, their first duty and goal and 
everything in their mind is to solve the case. And I think in some instances, they don't care how they do it as long as they have some sort of a resolution. And I think people tend to forget how common it is for either false confessions or for the wrong person to be convicted of a crime. And we like to think that it doesn't happen, but it still happens. Yeah, so, false confessions are really interesting. And that's, again, a whole other topic um, to do. Right. Because there is a lot of science that we have used in the past with respect to burn patterns, hair, fiber, carpet samples, um, teeth, bite mark patterns, things like that, that have now been proven pretty much to be junk science. So they're yeah. having to reanalyze literally thousands of cases in that of people that are currently in jail or on death row for convictions that happened that should have never happened because they've proven that the science is not as accurate as we would have once thought. So did you watch the, um, the Ted Bundy tapes? I did not. Oh, dude, um, you need to. And I've kind of delayed that for a reason. And part of that is, for the reason that I feel like a lot of those serial killers um, have really blown up as like celebrities and I really don't feel like they need any more recognition or to be pumped up any further because they're not celebrities. They're psychopaths. Their names should be erased from the annals of history. If you want to use the documentation and the history and the criminology behind it, great. But can we erase their names so that they're not continuing to be glorified? Right. And the person who who went and spoke with him. And this is the first, the whole thing was because this was the first time the tapes had been released publicly. So he had written a book while Bundy was still alive. Uh, it's called the only living witness and it's written by Stephen Mashad. Um, and it's, it's a pretty good, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's good as stranger beside me, but it is, right. it's pretty good. Um, and the really interesting thing actually doesn't take place in his tapes, but when they were looking for, Gary Ridgway and the Green River Killer. Yeah. He actually wrote the task force in Seattle and said, Hey, I think I can help you. And so they send somebody down there and they're talking to him and he's not giving them any actual useful information about how to find this guy. But the investigator realizes that he's, this is his way of inadvertently confessing. So, and so he's really talking about himself. So like, shit, that's got the a whole other really book full of information here. I can sell this. Exactly. And so that is a book. Um, it, it's called, um, Oh shit. Fuck. What's the name of the book? Oh, it's called river man because that's what Ted Bundy referred to the green river killer as, um, Highly recommend it. It's very good. But um, go check that out too. Like we're like just coming up with tons of different things here. But we have to cut this particular topic short because we're kind of running um, kind of close on time here. And we're going to jump over to um, Darcy's final topic for the show. If you want to go ahead and jump in there, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So we're going to talk about DNA databases and law enforcement agencies using them and accessing them now. So. You know, the big trigger point for this discussion is the green, the Golden State Killer, excuse me, um, that they captured last year. Um, and if you haven't, another, I'm going to add another book to the reading list. If you haven't read um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, you need to read that yesterday. It's fantastic. Who's the author on that one? Uh, say again? Do you have the author on that one? Uh, it is Michelle McNamara. Oh, that's the gal that passed away in her sleep, right? Well, yeah, she was, while she was writing it. It's insane. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing book, um, but you should definitely read it. Um, so and not at night when you're by yourself, because I heard it's super scary. You know, so I told that to people and 
when they read it after he'd been caught, they were like, nah, it's not that scary. And I'm like, you have to remember, I read it before, before he was caught. caught. So I'm like, yeah. you know, the odds that he is here where I am, very slim. But you hear a noise and you're like, oh, fuck, is my window locked? <laughs> like, it's just, it's stuff like that where you're like, always it's, just, been it's like just kind of super paranoid and super hyper vigilant with respect to that kind of stuff. And I don't know if it's because yep. I've watched too many forensic files when I was by myself, but I've always jumped to those conclusions that someone is in my house and about to murder me. Oh, immediately. <laughs> that's my first. That's my first. I hear a noise. And I'm like, well, I mean, if this is it. Then... This is it. I'm, I might as well enjoy the rest of this glass of wine or this ice cream. This is cone. how it's going. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> At least I'll sorry. be in my comfy bed. <laughs> Again, we digress. <laughs> anyway, so... Golden State Killer. So they, they caught him. And the way that they caught him was that they were able to put his um, DNA profile that he'd left at his crime scenes. They were able to put this in a database that was accessible to everybody. So the way it worked is it was not actually a DNA analysis site, um, but it allowed you to take your DNA information that you got back from like a 23andMe or Ancestry.com and you could upload it to this website. And this website was GEDmatch. Um, and, um, the thing about 23andMe and Ancestry is when you sign up for it, we are not sponsored by 23andMe or DNA, any of those, (laughs) we don't have a sponsorship, (laughs) but we, but we, you know, we're open to it. Right. Um, (laughs) But, um, so when you sign up for it, they tell you, you know, this information is private. You have to consent. Jesus Christ. Why do I have a phone call right now? Sorry, you the school just it. called me. <laughs> <laughs> Live on the show. <laughs> it was. It's from the, the university. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Anyways, um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Are you getting a call from the university? At, like she's on, like what, like East Coast time? Uh, uh, Central. It's eleven o'clock. There must be some kind of weather something going on. <laughs> That's fun. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck. Um. But so you, so you upload this and it, it or I'm sorry, 23andMe Ancestry. So they will take your DNA and use when you sign up, you know, this is your information. It's private. If you would like to, we can link you to other genetic relatives that are also in our database um, if you're interested in that information. So I said this on the BFD podcast, but I'm adopted and I actually did one of these um, genetic tests because I don't have any medical information, you know, from like relatives or anything. And I actually opted out of this, but if you opt in, you know, it can link you to distant cousins, things like that, which can be I opted good in, or bad. And it like literally tells you cousins in, you know, two States away, um, twice removed. It like really gets into detail. So if you're interested in your family tree and, and getting to know how many of your particular family are out there, it is, it's pretty interesting. And I didn't do it for any particular reason other than I didn't know Right. Anything else about it? So I was just like, I'm oh. so sorry. I have to interrupt you. What? So the phone call I just got from my university. What? Okay. A pair of inmates who recently escaped from the county jail have been spotted near a residence hall what on the campus. Fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that is so As crazy. I'm just talking about like my is my fucking door locked? Um, Wait, do you want to go to shop real quick? To be armed. No, it's locked. Um, they're not to be armed believed to be armed but please use caution in the area jesus christ like i was not expecting that i was expecting oh like God. it's been raining a lot that's insane <laughs> what the fuck speaking <laughs> anyway. of dna evidence <laughs> right um <laughs> i don't know how we get back on topic after that um so there's the company is jed match and and 
investigators basically uploaded his DNA and found distant relatives, built a family tree back, and that's how they were able to find him. So since he has been caught, there have been other cold cases that have been solved in this way, right? So there's a lot of people on Twitter and, you know, when they talk about these stories, and there's a lot of um, law enforcement investigators and genetic uh, forensic geneticists um, encouraging people to sign up for these databases that are that are accessible to law enforcement. Yes. Now, most of them, you still have to opt into this. Yeah. So it's not just something take that just automatically DNA. happens. Yeah, they right. can just take it, you know, if you sign up for one of these tests. So we want to make that clear. There is no, like, automatic opting in. You you They ask you, and you can say yes right. or no. You have to consent to this. So there's a lot of um, forensic genealogists, law enforcement people that are um, asking people to upload their DNA that they get from one of these databases, upload this to these ones that are accessible by um, law enforcement. And I think that that is a really interesting idea. But my first concern, especially when it came out that that's how they caught Golden State Killer, was how does this not violate the Fourth Amendment? Okay, so first and foremost... People should know that the DNA database that the government has, CODIS, the database, so if somebody from a crime scene gets their DNA tested, the government will go in and put it into a database to see if there is a match. The only way that you can find a match within that database is if the person that had that DNA that was left at the crime scene has been convicted of a crime at some point in their life, right? And and like a violent crime, not like a... Not like a speeding ticket or like, you know, or like a, a shop, car not something. shoplifting or something like that right. or a simple assault case. It's got to be a crime. I think a felony is the only way they can do the database. Yeah. It's got to be a certain type of felony. I know that in California, they can require DNA testing with weapons related charges, with attempted murder, with certain types of felonies, but not all crimes they can require. And it's got to be court directed for the DNA to be submitted. So that being said, if you've got somebody that can that commits a crime and leaves DNA on the scene, if they scene, if they never get caught or if they don't commit any other crimes with DNA on the scene, then they will never find that person. So, which is what happened with Golden State Killer? They didn't find him. Like his last crime was what 1986, right? And they so just called him in 2018. Long fucking gap. And the only way they found him was through this. But then this brings to mind a secondary question for me, and that is how many times would this this particular type of identification technique lead to a false positive or lead to the wrong person? What is the possibility that this would be inaccurate in backtracking to find the person that committed the crime? Right, because you have to rely on public um, records for building the family tree. And how many times would they be likely to find the wrong person in this manner? And how scientific is the process that they're collecting this DNA? And I have to tell you, I have to be a little bit skeptical because when I submitted the DNA for the test that I did, and this is interesting because when you do this test, the test that I took, they have two little vials that you have to spit into in order to collect your DNA. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty gross. (laughs) That you're not supposed to eat or drink for a certain period of time and blah, blah, blah. Well, I ate and I drank and I swished water around my mouth rather than because I didn't have any fucking spit when I went to do this test. And I was like, crap, I don't have any saliva. So I swished water around in my mouth and spit into the tube. And they tell you you're not supposed to do that. 
And yet, they didn't fail my test. They didn't tell me there wasn't enough DNA. They gave me results regardless. So that makes me wonder, and the results that I gave, because my mom also did the test, okay? The results that I gave matched my mom's results 100%. And she did a DNA testing through a different company. And she did hers the way that it was. she was told to do it, which was spitting into the vial, no eating, no drinking. So I don't know. I don't know how accurate that testing is. It's, it's subject to a lot of, when you have a test that you're sending to someone in their home and telling them how to do this DNA testing, there's a lot of opportunity for failure, for corruption of the sample, for a lot of other things that could potentially go wrong with this. Right. I mean, just like not even the scientific background of it, but I mean, how, how do you know they're not fucking mixing it up? Right. Exactly. Especially for like me, like I don't have any genetic real. It's not like I can match it with my mom. My mom lives in Alaska. She lives thousands of miles from me. So it's not as if I had any of her DNA to corrupt my sample with, but it did right. definitely make me wonder because I did not do the test properly. How accurate is it? Do they just yeah. take, you know, because they ask you questions before you take the test with respect to, you know, your origin, where you're from, what your name is. Did they take it as a composite of family members with the same type of name and kind of match you with those people? Like, it, it yeah. makes me wonder. It's just a really interesting thing. And late last year, there were news reports, you know, coming out that were saying, if you live in the United States and you have European ancestry, there is a 60% chance that you have a third cousin or closer already in one of these databases. It's crazy. So there are that many people actually taking these tests. That's Mm -hmm. absolutely baffling. Yeah. And I, like, I understand the benefits of, of doing this. Obviously I, I haven't committed any violent crimes, but the other thing is with me, it's not, you can't go back and build a family tree. My DNA isn't going to link to anybody else in my family because I'm adopted. Right. So that, that doesn't matter. But like, I just, I, I still don't know if I would recommend somebody do this. Like I just have too many questions of handing over my DNA without explicit control over how it's being used. How many times do you have a creepy family member that would try to backtrack to find you that you would not want to reconnect with? I just, there's just a lot of like little questions and things that could, that could potentially go wrong with a system like that, where they use that DNA in a manner other than to tell you specifically what your background is. Yeah. I just have, I'm just not, I'm not comfortable with it. Like I would need like, I would need to hire a lawyer and I would need to have something like signed a legal document that it's only going to be used for this one specific instance and you're not going to use it. Like I just have too many questions and I'm not trusting enough to just hand it over basically. And then there's also the deal, like you say people are like doing this to get medical information about if they're adopted in order to be prepared. But how, what is your quality of life going to be if you do that for medical reasons and find out that you're one of the genome carriers for breast cancer or for ovarian cancer? How, how you're going to be stressed as fuck. And how, what is your quality yeah. of life going to be if you know that you're going to have this or the, what is the other one that it marks for? Um, it's some like sort Alzheimer's of Hod- and John's Hodgkin's uh, oh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. No, no, it's ALC or. What is the word? Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So like that's a marker that they can also find in there. And just like, what is your quality of life going to be if you know you're going to get those things? I mean, I understand some people say they want to prepare for it and be ready so that they can know and understand and give their family notice and things like that. But it's just, there's a lot of frightening stuff out there that could potentially come up with these tests and what they do for people. For me, I'll say, because when I was born in the mid eighties, they weren't getting a lot of medical history from the biological parents. Yeah. Um, so when I go to the doctor and they say, do you have any history of um, heart disease or diabetes or any, I, I say, I have no idea, you know? Yeah. And so now I can at least say like, for whatever it's worth, I did this DNA test and it didn't come back positive. Okay. Do with that what, well, you know what I mean? So like, but there was one cause, cause the breast cancer, BRCA one and two actually wasn't in the original test, but they are, they're constantly adding tests and then they run you DNA against those. And so I get this email and it's like, find out if you are testing for BRCA one and two. And I'm like, Oh God damn it. Do I want to? And I'm right? like, I'm in, I'm in New Orleans with like a bunch of my girlfriends and I'm like, so I'm about to find out if I'm going to get breast cancer when I'm 50 and I don't know that. It, it came back negative. I, don't think but like, I do though. But I mean, that's a scary kind of thought that's involved with that whole thing. Right. Right. And I guess like, in, in situations like that, if you do know that it does run in your family, you can do the preventative things. Like, you know, there's the mastectomy, you know, and stuff like that for the breast cancer and stuff like that. So there, it does provide more information. But, yeah, it was it was a certainly um, an anxiety-inducing email for sure. Is there anything else that you want to add to this topic? I know we've pretty much beaten this one, and we're at an hour mark right now. So That's it. Awesome. Well, this has been a great show. We are so thankful and so glad that you all tuned in to join us today. This is the point where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us. We would be more than happy to hear from you guys. We love emails. We're at hypochondriacalmanac at gmail.com. I have put the email into the show notes. We love, love, love your emails, suggestions for future shows. We are more than happy to listen and to try to um, accommodate you folks. Uh, We also have another show called the BFD Show or the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. Please feel free to go listen to that one. We talk a little bit more about true crime on that show. Please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night.